In the talk this evening, I'd like to talk about um, the way in which the meditation unfolds and the way in which it deepens. The meditation practice is not concerned solely with creating a particular kind of mental state, nor is meditation practice concerned solely with gaining experiences. The primary aim of meditation is to learn alternative ways of being and living and seeing in which we can or through which we can bring about an end to conflict and fear and separation in our lives and also through the development of those ways of being really learn and understand what it means on a very deep and intuitive level, what it means to live and see in a way of freedom. The development of meditation practice is a process of basically deepening in insight and in understanding. And it is one's own insight and understanding that is liberating, that is transforming. And that insight and understanding is, so we as we so clearly experience in our lives, not something that can be given to us by someone else. And when really beginning to see clearly inwardly, beginning to see the unfoldment of insight inwardly, we also see that insight is also something that simply cannot be lost. And I can give you an endless kind of unfoldment of the number of times I've lost my own insights in the mail, in the airlines, and <laughs> believe me, it still keeps coming. You don't lose it because simply because it isn't given to you. In that process of deepening in insight and understanding, there are changes that take place within ourselves. There are changes that take place in the way in which we perceive the world and the way in which we perceive ourselves. There are changes also that take place in what we perceive. Basically, our vision or our concept of reality undergoes change, undergoes transformation. Through the development of meditation, too, we begin to have access to different kinds of meditative experiences, and we begin to have access to varying altered states of consciousness. Apart from the experiences and apart from the altered states of consciousness, there are also qualitative changes that take place within our own consciousness, within the very makeup of our being. And those qualitative changes that take place in our consciousness are changes that are lasting. The experiences and the altered states of consciousness that we can have access to through meditation, and you know you hear about them all the time, you know you've probably read different books like Autobiography of a Yogi or, you know, Carlos Castaneda's and, you know, the varying kind of books that keep telling you about this whole variety of wondrous experiences that are available. They are available, it's a fact. It's also a fact that the experiences and the altered states of consciousness that are accessible through meditation 
are made accessible basically through cultivating different factors within ourselves, through cultivating the factors of attention, of energy, of vitality, of being conscious and awake, to cultivating, well, through the development over time, to cultivating um, inner patience, to cultivating dedication, we begin to have access to different states of consciousness. Now, no matter how high or mystical or liberating those experiences are, the basic fact is that they are transient. They do pass and they do change. They have a beginning and they do also have an ending. In time, they are held in time. They are supported Those experiences are made accessible and supported by the very factors of energy and attention that we cultivate. And when those factors are withdrawn, of course the experiences change. And that loss of experiences, of course, is a problem that many people who have had more experience in meditation find themselves encountering. You know, they come into a retreat and they they have access to these states of calm and quietness and they leave a retreat and wonder where they went. You know, they, they come into a retreat and you have certain highs or, you know, perhaps even get into the visions and sounds and energy centers and whatever else. And then, of course, you, you, you're not sitting in it so much anymore. Your attention is not so focused anymore. And again, your experiences seem to dissolve. And it's not always easy for people to be able to let go of experiences because often we do pin our ideas of progress on how many experiences we have. We pin our ideas of getting better or getting deeper or getting higher on the number of experiences that we're able to have, just as we do in our lives. Basically, we ourselves in the role of the experiencer, whether it's the meditator, or in another role of the experiencer elsewhere in our lives, we tend to measure ourselves, our our very worth and identity, by the quality of the experiences we have, whether they're good or they're bad. Which is why, of course, when you find yourself, you know, having one of those sittings in meditation that, you know, fits all the kind of um, definitions of being a good sitting, you know, even though you hear endlessly there's no such thing as a good sitting, most people still harbor the secret thought that there actually is such a thing as a good sitting. Hmm? So when you have one of those things that you really do feel is a good sitting, even though you may not go out and pray, you know, brag about it or boast about it because you know there's supposed to be no such thing as a good sitting, invariably you feel very good about yourself. Hmm? And when you come in and you have one of those things which is a bad sitting, although again you do know that there is no such thing as a bad sitting, <laughs> Secretly, you do know there are some things that are some very, very bad sittings. And <laughs> when you have one of those things that is a bad sitting, it's very rare that you're able to leave the hall feeling very wonderful about yourself. Hmm? So we see, you know, how much we do pin our identity and our sense of worth and our sense of being on the kind or quality of experiences we have. And it is a kind of major obstacle in meditation because, you know, you can get quite high in meditation. And if you do measure yourself by those experiences, you can also get very, very low. So the experiences are transient, but that's not in any way to invalidate uh, the worth of having experiences. 
um, experiences, you know, I mean, everybody would like to have a nice experience, a good experience in practice. Mm -hmm. um, to have access to different states of consciousness, be they deeper states of peace or of calm or of joy, of serenity, of equanimity, of course, acts as a great inspiration. You know, it's especially hard for people who begin in meditation and their experiences seem to basically keep falling into the category of being bad ones. It is difficult to keep the inspiration going. And you only need one moment or one glimpse of real kind of stillness inwardly or calm or peace and you can feel wonderfully inspired. And you really see too that inspiration brings energy. Inspiration brings energy and it brings interest. So experiences are very, very valid in their, in their ability to bring about that and nurture that inspiration inwardly. Experiences are also very valid in that there can be a great deal of insight that comes through the means of experience. You know, beginning to see yourself in different ways is a real turning point in your perception of yourself. Beginning to experience that you can abide in ways that are not so familiar to you, in ways that feel much freer, more peaceful, more liberating inwardly, can be a real turning point in coming out of limited definitions of who we are. It's very important to see that it is possible for us to perceive ourselves in the world in ways that are not limited by habit or by reaction or by defensiveness or by aggressiveness, very important to see that it is possible for us that we have those resources inwardly that make it possible for us to live and to see and to be in a way of peace and sensitivity and insight and a real clarity of perception. If we do too, if you find yourself through meditation, you know, having those glimpses where your, your kind of limited visions of your either yourself or your limited visions of reality, really have some breakthrough with them. You know, it does really help, yes, in being able to question our kind of perception of reality when our perception of reality is clouded or is distorted by reactions or by mental states. And experiences, you know, if you have glimpses in practice where you begin to touch levels within yourself, where you begin really to feel true depths and moments of peace and sensitivity, they, those moments make a deep impression on our consciousness. And they do help and serve to remind us really of what is of true value in our lives, what is of true meaning and significance and the kind of qualities inwardly that do bring meaning and significance to our own lives, to our own sense of our being. Apart from the experiences, there are changes in consciousness that take place, qualitative changes in our way of seeing, in the very makeup of our being. Now, you can see, you know, this whole evolvement of our vision of ourselves is constructed through so many different factors in our lives. You know that our, our kind of childhood, um, some people even feel our, our, the way of our birth, the impressions we receive from our culture, our society, um, our own experiences in life of successes and failures, the degree of love or brutality we've received, all of this comes together and helps us to shape a vision of who we are, a sense of who we are as a person. 
And sometimes those visions of ourselves are not always ones which are very liberating. Sometimes those visions of ourselves are wounded visions or incomplete visions or um, visions which are rooted in a sense of lack or need or inadequacy. Those very visions of ourselves or scars or wounds or limited perceptions of who we are as a person undergo a basic change in the sense that changes that take place in our consciousness essentially break through barriers which prevent us really from being free and from being whole. So there are essential qualitative changes that take place in the very makeup of our being. And those changes are not a product of technique. You know, they are not a product of particular methods. They don't come about as a result necessarily of time or practicing in a particular way. Those changes that come about are born of insight. They are born of understanding ourselves. And that quality of insight, of understanding ourselves, it is not something that is transient. It's not something that passes away when you cease to sit so much, when you cease to apply so much attention or energy or effort. It's not to say that those qualitative changes in our being are something that can be totally separated from technique and from practice and from the factors we cultivate in practice. Because this very cultivation in practice of sensitivity, of attention, of being present, of being conscious, basically serves and helps us to bring about this inner environment which is very receptive to understanding. This inner environment of calm and stillness in which we can really and truly be touched by insight and by understanding and in which change can take place. So basically, the practice as we engage in it here is something that serves to facilitate the development of insight. In the talk this evening, I want to to look both at some of the experiences that are accessible through meditation practice and also, hopefully, to try and give you some sense of the way in which meditation can unfold. Now, I'm not saying it's the only way that meditation can unfold. And obviously, this is somewhat related to my own experience in practice. But it is a way that meditation has the possibility of unfolding. Now, one major, major reservation and hesitation I have in giving a talk which concerns meditation experiences and the development of insight is that many, many people who come to practice do have this tendency to be very, very hard on themselves, to do a lot of comparing, a lot of evaluating, to be always kind of measuring progress and regression and whether you're getting better or worse or higher or lower or wherever you are in your practice. And sometimes to hear a talk about experiences in capital letters or the unfoldment of insight in capital letters can act as a real catalyst for the mind suddenly to start jumping and comparing and weighing and measuring. Oh, I haven't had that one or I haven't got there yet. No wonder if everybody else has, you know. And um, You know, it seems like I'm never going to get there. So I just ask, in, just in listening to this talk, 
just as much as possible to set aside the comparing mind, the judging mind, the evaluating mind, and hopefully this talk can just serve to give a basic kind of guideline to the possibilities of meditation. One factor that needs to be taken into consideration in talking about the unfoldment of meditation or the unfoldment of insight is the factor that each one of us is unique and so that each one of us does experience meditation in different ways. When, when we all sit here together, you can be sure that not everybody is having the same experience or experiencing the meditation or themselves in the same way. Because we are unique, we each bring, all of us, who we are to meditation and who we are influences basically the way that we experience our practice here. And what is important is not to try and think or look for some kind of standard formula about the way your practice is evolving, but instead of looking for a kind of standard formula to recognize and acknowledge and appreciate and honor your own uniqueness, and in that honoring and acknowledging your own uniqueness, that is expressed basically by your own openness to what is happening with you in the moment in the present. Because whatever is happening with you in the moment in the present is where you need to be, is where you what you need to experience, is bringing its own messages to you about what needs attention, development, or letting go of. And that openness to the moment is really one of the major ingredients, the primary ingredients in developing an insight, not looking for some model about what should be happening in your meditation. There is no model. There is no formula. There is no standard of what should be that we should all be conforming to. The moment is unique, and you and you are unique in it. And it is there that we all need to be. There is another factor, too, that, uh, that I call a kind of karmic makeup of a person. And that kind of, for lack of a better description, that mean, that by a karmic makeup of someone, I basically mean the kind of differences that we have within ourselves that incline us towards experiencing our practice in particular ways. For example, some people will come into retreat and, you know, they do a few sittings, you know, and they have a wonderful quality of absolute concentration. And it's very, very rare. And extraordinarily rare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another person comes into a retreat and they sit down and they have visions of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Another person comes into a retreat, you know, and they've got Buddhas all over the consciousness. Mm -hmm. Another person comes into a retreat and they have all this whole variety of meditation experiences and many more people come to retreats and very rarely have any of these experiences. And it's not because, you know, they may be putting in exactly the same amount of attention, exactly the same amount of energy, exactly the same amount of interest and vitality, but because of the differences within ourselves, we experience meditation in different ways. And what is important in that, in, in that is really again and again reminding ourselves that experiences in themselves are not liberating that what is truly liberating, what truly brings about lasting transformation is insight and understanding. 
the insight into who we are, the insight into the nature of ourselves, understanding the very nature of reality. Something else I'd like to mention is that when, when we're in practice, whether we're new to practice and, or if we are very, very familiar with meditation, people often have this idea that your meditation is going to evolve in this kind of progressive way. You know, that you're going to start at a place of confusion and dullness and ignorance and bondage and fear and, and uh, chaos and all the rest of it. And that you're gradually, gradually going to move out of that and slowly that's going to keep changing and changing and get a little bit clearer and a little bit clearer and a little bit less of the confusion. And eventually that's going to keep going and going and going and eventually it's going to be bingo when you reach enlightened retirement. <laughs> for most people and you never have to practice anymore you know you can say goodbye to all the sitting business and just hang out you know and everything's going to take care of itself and it, it's, it's sort of like the happy rest home of meditators you know <laughs> most people it doesn't happen that way in fact I don't know anyone who it's happened to in that way first of all there's very rarely this gradual progression for most people, their practice goes in valleys and peaks. Huh? And you, know, you, you sit for a while and you do some practice and you find, yes, that there's a, a, an increasing amount of clarity that comes, less confusion, greater attention, and your consciousness starts to change. You feel more peaceful, more sensitive, and you feel, oh, good, I'm finally getting somewhere. And no sooner are you finally getting somewhere than out of nowhere seems to arise this incredible wave of chaos, and it's back down to the valley. You know? Or you sit and you find yourself getting quieter and quieter and you just get to that lovely place where you're nice and calm and you're nice and quiet and you just stay in there for a moment and up comes this little voice and says, isn't it nice and quiet? And, and it's gone. You know? And that's followed by this incredible wave of noise and thoughts and activity. And it's so important to remember that we can't measure possibly our development meditation by the peaks alone. You know, you can't possibly measure your development just by how high you get or how quiet you get or how calm you get. And what is equally important in the development of meditation is what happens down there in the valleys. That is really the acid test of your practice. What is happening down there in the valleys, you know? When, when your mind is scattered, when your mind is confused, when you have lots of emotion happening, when your body is difficult. Down there in the valleys, your capacity to accommodate that, to meet that, to be gentle with that, to be sensitive to all of that, and, and to work with it, to utilize your own resources to work with that, that is truly where your practice begins to show its true depth. And I think it's also pretty well an actuality in meditation that as you deepen and as you do become more still and calm, that very settling of your consciousness into some stillness and calmness basically acts as an opening inwardly, which is why those periods of calm or periods of quietness are often followed very quickly by storms, by lots of chaos, by lots of things arising. And it's almost as if that settling in the meditation really allows you to open up inwardly. And that opening up inwardly often means that you have different memories, images, patterns of being, reactions that arise. 
Now meditation, when we actually formally begin to practice, meditation begins basically by paying attention to the moment. In paying attention to the moment in a retreat, for example, we slow down a lot, we choose a focus of attention and we bring our attention to that. Now that turning your attention inwardly involves a pretty major adjustment in your life, a shift of your focus of attention from the outer to the inner. Now when you make that shift in your focus of attention from the outer to the inner, basically what you meet are your habit patterns, your habitual reactions, you, you meet your mental states, you meet uh, your body which is resisting and uncomfortable, and all of this is often felt to be really rather a distraction from your practice. In that turning inwardly too, or the very fact, actuality of turning inwardly, does bring up all these resistances that I mentioned earlier on in the retreat. The resistances of dullness, of restlessness, of negativity, of desire, and of doubt. And often in the first part of meditation, your experience in relationship to these resistances is essentially one where you feel very, very overwhelmed by them. And it's a very difficult stage of meditation, this, because basically you keep experiencing all the hard times, all the difficulties, and yet very, very few in the beginning of the benefits that this turning inwardly of attention can really bring to you. And because you experience so many of the difficulties, it's also a stage in meditation where there tends to be an enormous level of self-judgment enormous level of negativity directed inwardly and comparison. You know, feelings of failure, feelings of doubt in yourself, feelings of, of doubt in your, in your adequacy, your worth, your capacity really to be with yourself. And that kind of judgment, of course, further tends or further serves to really disturb you and to create a sense of unease inwardly. And what is really so important in that first stage of meditation is really cultivating so, so much faith. Now, not faith in anyone, not faith in anything outside of yourself, but faith in your own potential. Truly trusting in your own potential to be fully clear, to be fully awake, to be fully conscious inwardly. The kind of essence of consciousness that abides within ourselves cultivating so much, so much patience, that kind of really deep level of patience, of acceptance and of openness and trust in ourselves. And that faith and that patience and trust are the basic ingredients which see you through that first part of that first stage of meditation, which can be so very hard to be with yourself in. In that first stage of meditation too, your practice tends to be very concerned with how to meditate, you know, how to do it right. You know, they often have this idea, well, there must be some way of doing it right. And if you're experiencing kind of ongoing difficulties in your meditation, sometimes that there's that, that kind of doubt arises, well, I must just be doing something wrong. You know, there must be some sort of key ingredient that I'm missing in, in how to watch my breath or how to be with my breath. Now, there are really not that many ways, actually, of being with your breath. But there can be that doubt in yourself. You know, well, you know somebody's got this kind of secret answer somewhere, this kind of magic answer of how actually to do it right. And 
at that stage of meditation too, I, I, the primary bulk of our attention is concerned with the contents of what's happening. Hmm? Whether it's restlessness or fear and anxiety or dullness, you know, you get very, very concerned with, with this wonderful meditation expression that I love of what is coming up. <laughs> you know, it's such a strong image for me. You know, you know, we often talk about what is coming up as if you know there's going to, you know, there's great kind of elevator <laughs> inwardly, you know, up. <laughs> you know, and often we're very, very obviously, realistically, very concerned with what is coming up because that's what's making the deepest impression on our consciousness. And in the beginning of meditation, believe me, there's a lot that comes up, as you may have already experienced. You know, it's like opening Pandora's box. You know, you sit down and, you know, you came here thinking you were a relatively balanced, okay person, and you're here for two days and you begin to believe you're totally neurotic. You know, and... You know, and probably the most extreme of anyone because there is so much that arises. You know, and we do become aware, you know, of often how much in our lives we do do a lot of holding in and a lot of suppressing. And that movement inwardly, you know, where there is a lot of opening and a lot of things arising for some people more than others is a very healthy, healthy part of meditation because it is a releasing and it is an acknowledgement which needs to be given to areas which have been held or suppressed inwardly. It is truly a difficult time because when, thing, when you do stop the momentum of your life and open inwardly, then when things do arise, they seem to arise with such intensity. But it is not because you're more neurotic here, you know, or because you're suddenly worse off because you're here. It is to do with the level of holding and containing and controlling that's been taking place outside of this situation. And when you have to really trust that it is a healthy process and be open to it. Because if you don't trust that it is a healthy process and are open to it, you can indeed use meditation as a kind of watchdog and sensor which can further be used to suppress basically things that have previously been suppressed or controlled. You know, you can try and make yourself, I feel particularly for women, try and make yourself quiet and calm and controlled. And it seems to me that in our history, in our conditioning, we have too much experience in learning how to quiet and control ourselves. And there does need to be that sense. I'm not invalidating quietness because, yes, there's certainly a place for it, but a very natural involvement of stillness, not a quietness that is born in any way of suppressing or forcing or controlling. But when there is a lot arising in your practice, whether in the form of thought or feeling or past memory images, the basic feeling is often one of very much trying to stay on top of it all. You know, it can feel like you're hanging on by your fingernails, trying to stay on top of it all. And often the feeling in the meditation then is one of being really kind of tight inwardly. It's very, very difficult to be relaxed when you feel constantly almost assailed and assaulted and invaded by this barrage or stream of feelings and thoughts inwardly. A characteristic, too, of this part of meditation is our relationship to what is arising is an extremely personal relationship. There's a quite a strong sense of dwelling on the things that arise. We can see that because, I mean, when, the, say, even in relationship to the hindrances, you know, when the, the dullness or the restlessness comes, we can feel so down about it. 
you know, so frustrated with it, so judgmental about ourselves, feel so inadequate because of this, this closeness that we have to what is arising and because there is not so much space or perspective around it. And in that personal relationship, we often feel ourselves just to be overwhelmed. You know, either overwhelmed by thoughts or feelings, overwhelmed by mental states, or overwhelmed by hindrances. And when things happen, when things arise, you know, there's very much that feeling of being the owner, you know, that this is certainly my pain. You know, other people may talk about seeing pain with perspective, and their pain may indeed dissolve into sensations or whatever, but my pain is real pain, you know? It's, <laughs> you know, and it's very much my, my thoughts and, and my body is a real sense of, of being uneasy, an, an uneasy relationship between oneself and what is happening in the meditation. There is also at this point a tendency to focus on the negative. You know, you may be having some very good insights, you may be having some very good changes taking place within yourself, some very good understanding unfolding, but we tend not to look at that. You know, you may be putting in lots of energy and lots of attention and lots of vitality, but there's a tendency to ignore that, to invalidate that, or to devalue its worth. And there is a tendency to focus on the negative. Look, I'm like this, or I don't do this, or they're doing so much better, you know, or I have so many problems, or my body is worse, or I can't do as much. There's a tendency to focus on the negative just because there seems to be so much of it. And, of course, by focusing on the negative, you give yourself a really difficult time. By not having a total picture and a total appreciation of what is happening in your meditation, you do give yourself a very hard time and are very, very hard on yourself. The mark, or one of the marks of this stage of practice, too, is that um, very much feel involved in the role of the doer and the role of the meditator. When you're working a lot with the difficult, your meditation seems to be characterized by a real lot of trying and often a real feeling of struggle. You know, like it is really, really hard work. And our trying and our struggle is often revolving around trying to make things different, trying to make ourselves different, trying to make our experience different than what it is. You know, trying to have more attention, trying to have more energy, trying to have more focus, trying to have less negativity or less dullness. And there's a lot of feeling of trying and struggling, and it can feel to be a very, very uphill task. You know, you, you make kind of small gains, and then you seem to lose them all in the next sitting, you know. And you go back as another small gain, and then again it's gone. Because of that sense of struggling, of course, there is in the practice a lot of tension, you know, or some extent, some degree of tension, and often a feeling of control, you know, like you're really trying to stay on top of it and control your experience. It's often, too, at this point of meditation, that we do, within ourselves, formulate these models of what a good meditation is and what a good meditator is, you know, and... It's hard not to have a model about what a good meditation is and what a good meditator is. You know, when you constantly hear all this talk about peace and sensitivity and clarity, you know, I mean, obviously that's what we tune in in. We tune in on that must be what a good meditation is all about, you know. 
Where is it? You know, and you often formulate a model of what a good meditator is. You know, someone's most tranquil, a kind of radiant sunbeam of bliss and, you know, and, and, and insight and understanding. And of course, as soon as we have a model, who, you know, what, what we do, we compare ourselves to it. You know? And then, of course, we can feel to be very inadequate and we feel to be very discouraged simply because we seem to have so much of the bad you know, the bad meditations, or feel ourselves so much to be in the role of the bad meditator. Now, the bad news about this stage of meditation is that it lasts an awfully long time. <laughs> it, it can... <laughs> My apologies, but it does, and it can, it can last for months, and it can last for years. There are changes that take place in it. And there are breakthroughs that take place in it. There are changes that take place in our perspective. There are changes that take place that we find ourselves reacting less. And yet again and again over the development of our meditation, you know, even though we have breakthroughs, we find ourselves encountering our old friends of dullness and restlessness and negativity and doubt. We find ourselves encountering some of our very familiar friends. You know, sometimes you come into a retreat and you feel, you know, like you're such a mess and you've got so many things to work with, you know. You know you've got anger and jealousy and envy and negativity and defensiveness and inferiority complexes and inadequacies. And it feels like there's so much there, you know, it's really rather daunting. And yet for mo- most of us, we find basically there's one or two things that we're working with both in our lives and in our meditation. So throughout the kind of development of meditation, you know, you have breakthroughs and there's definite changes that take place in your experience of meditation. And yet every time you kind of deepen somewhat, often that very deepening means that you encounter a block. You know, you encounter a block in the form of one of your own patterns of being or one of the hindrances. Now the good news, there is good news. The good news is that there is change and that, and that this stage of meditation, even though <laughs> it's difficult, it does indeed pass. Hmm? We find just through sustaining the practice, first of all, that there's much less involvement. You know, the same things are arising, but we just don't feel so affected by them anymore. There's a recognition and an acknowledgement, but a deeper feeling of being able to accommodate what is arising. Less of a tendency to define yourself by it, so that when the anger arises or when the difficulty arises, when the pain arises, there's less of a tendency to judge yourself by it. There's less of a tendency to evaluate your worth by it. There's more of a sense that you can actually accommodate that, that that is a part of yourself, but it's only a part of your totality. It's not the whole of your totality. It's not the whole of your being. It's not the whole of who you are. Rather that it has a place within yourself, but more important, it has a place within yourself where you feel in touch with the resources within yourself to be able to accommodate and understand it. Through the very power of your attention as it develops, there is less reaction, you know, and so there are less ups and downs. You find in your practice that you get less of these extremes happening in your feelings and in your thoughts. You know, less of the extremes of the highs and less of the extreme of the low. Less of the feeling of of being down and then feeling elated. Instead, there's a, a greater sense of calm that comes 
in and through the variety of experiences that come to you, through the difficulties, there's a greater sense of calm and openness that begins to develop, that stays steady and strong even when the difficulties are there. Through the sustaining, too, of the practice, there are some changes that begin to come about within your consciousness. You know, just through that steadiness of applying attention, of being with yourself, there does come about a greater feeling of spaciousness, greater feeling of sensitivity, a greater feeling of openness. There's much less tension. And the very same things that used to overwhelm you or that previously used to overpower you, you find that you have space within yourself to hold them. You have space within yourself to accommodate them. And with that, that lessening of extremes, there comes about really a spontaneous development of more tranquility, of more mindfulness, of a greater sense of being present and of being conscious with what is. Because there's less of a feeling of a need to avoid what is happening with you. You know, there's less resistances to being with what is happening to you. There's less of a feeling of needing to control what is happening to you. Basically because you're beginning to trust, beginning to establish yourself and trust in that spaciousness and sensitivity and calm that develops. There's also a pretty major insight that takes place in that point in practice through really connecting with your own resources and seeing that you can nurture them, seeing that you can develop them, seeing that you do hold within yourself resources of strength, resources of stability, resources of sensitivity, resources of calm, you begin truly to understand that you are not a victim. You're not a victim of your mind, not a victim of your past, not a victim of your conditioning. Because basically you begin to truly understand through your own resources the power of transformation that you hold within yourself. And that you don't have to necessarily work things out. You don't have to necessarily resolve things. You don't have to necessarily, although I'm not discounting it, have to go back further into the past and trying to erase things that have happened to you to wound or disable your vision of yourself. You begin to see that in the present you have the resources to nurture an environment inwardly in which there's a tremendous amount of power. The power to be able to accommodate, the power to transform, the power to change, the power to hold. It is an, an insight which is very, very important because there begins through that insight of not being a victim there begins to be established very, very deep sense of trust in yourself, trust in the resources that you have. And truly, in seeing ourselves no longer as being the victim of our own minds, our own feelings, our own conditioning, our own images, there's very little in the world if we are connected with that inner power that can make a victim of us. And it is a very important shift in the consciousness Through the, then the, the sustaining of the, the practice, you find that there's greater stability and there's greater capacity to develop the actual practice itself. You find, because there's less extremes in the mind, that there's a refining of your attention 
there's more subtlety in your sense of being conscious, there's more subtlety in your perception of, of the present. Still you're very much involved still in practicing technique, but there's a greater sense of continuity in it, with ease. You know, your attention is flowing from moment to moment, rather than you kind of pushing your attention along from moment to moment. It begins to have its own flow and it begins to have its own momentum because you begin to really experience a sense of joy, the joy of being conscious in really being connected with the present. There comes about then um, a greater interest basically in the practice and a greater interest in exploring your own sense of possibility or your own sense of unfoldment within the context of meditation. Through the power of attention, you still, you still may be very much in the role of the meditator, the role of the doer, but there's much less struggle, there's much less trying. And you begin, through the very sustaining of your sense of being present in the moment, you begin to experience basically the benefits, some of the benefits of meditation. You begin to experience some real inner glimpses of peace, of calm. You begin to experience some very deep levels of stillness, a sense of harmony with the moment, a sense of rapport inwardly. There's a greater sense of, of quietness, very spontaneously, there's still content that comes up because you are very open to that, because you're very receptive to that. But there's also a much clearer perception of what is taking place within yourself. There's less being distracted by reactions or by um, resistances to what is taking place in the moment. You begin to experience, and sometimes it can come as a great surprise, you know, just a deep, deep sense of calm. You know, and the first time you begin to have some glimpses of inner peace and calm, you know, it's, wow, you know, it can happen to me too, you know. It's kind of really a big surprise. And, and you find that, that your body really begins, too, to settle down. So much of that tension just dissolves. And suddenly, you know, it can actually even be a joy to sit, you know. <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> it can actually even be a joy just to sit down and and just to be with yourself, and to be with the moment, and to be in the meditation. There's a deep sense of just settling into the moment, settling into being with yourself. There's a sense of, of deepening too, and there are changes that come about in your consciousness. You begin really to be established more and more deeply, in a sense of, of lightness inwardly, in a sense of equanimity inwardly. And the thoughts and feelings that are arising don't make so much impression. You know, you're aware that they are there, you can meet them when they are there, and you arise to, you're very aware too that they also pass. And you find yourself less and less kind of buying into limited realities, limited definitions about who you are. You find yourself less and less buying into kind of habitual judgments about your limitations or habitual judgments about your, your sense of yourself. There is basically a much deeper feeling of expansiveness inwardly. And your meditation begins to have its own momentum. You know, when you step out of that position of being so much in control and so much in charge, um, so much evaluating, your meditation does begin to have its own momentum. 
And instead of being so much always concerned with the contents, although there's no dismissing of the contents, because sometimes it's very important to be aware of the contents of what's arising within ourselves. But also, in our awareness of the contents of what is arising within ourselves, whether it's fear or anger or anxiety or memories or emotions, there's also a deeper awareness of the processes that take place within ourselves. You know, we, we become increasingly conscious of the way that we build up particular images about who we are and then believe in them. We become uh, aware of how we build up particular realities for ourselves, you know, from a single thought or a memory, you know, fed with associations and fed with feelings, how often we keep buying into these realities that we don't even like and we don't even want. And yet so again and so often again and again we find ourselves there thinking, oh look, I'm so weak or I'm so fearful or I'm so angry. We find ourselves less and less buying into that. There's a sense of how that kind of reality is constructed and how much pain and how much suffering is created through those constructions. And basically there's a greater sense of freedom inwardly that you don't have to buy into limited realities. You don't have to buy into limited visions of yourself. It's that your very consciousness in the moment expands your sense of who you are. Expand your vision of your possibility, your potential, your own sense of being. And that inner connection, that inner rapport, at the same time brings about an increasing rapport and connection with the moment and with all beings. There's, um, at that place of really understanding those constructions, you really see that you don't need to be bound to limited identities. You, don't, you see, really see that you don't need to be bound to limited definitions. You really experience for yourself that there are possibilities, that there are realities of ways of being in which there can be a true sense of wholeness and completeness inwardly, a freedom from the past, a freedom from conditioning. And often in that awareness of, of processes, there are a lot of insights. Often an insight is often felt to be very, very special. And you see again and again the way you construct and, and the falseness of construction. And basically the scene of the falseness of creating these realities brings about freedom from them. Now, when the practice then deepens and you find yourself more established in this deeper sense of openness and sensitivity inwardly, this greater sense of expansiveness, a greater ease to calm and tranquility and spaciousness, you, you face a basic choice in your development of practice. Either you can choose to develop particular techniques and methods, or you can choose really to move towards a more expansive awareness and deepening that. Now, some people, for different reasons, choose to develop techniques and methods because the different techniques and practices of meditation all have their own particular benefits. Now, here we spend three days being with our breath. Now, there are people who spend years being with their breath, and I know that seems probably a horrific thought at the moment. <laughs> you know, who on earth would, would want to be with their breath for a year? <laughs> But there, there is a practices of concentration that basically utilize your breath. 
And those practices of concentration basically take you into deeper states of concentration, give you access to deep levels of concentration, and what is called officially in the jargon as being jhanas or absorption states. And the absorption states are shifts in consciousness, basic shifts in consciousness, basically alternative states of consciousness, in which there is deep absorption in that state of concentration. And, you know, there are different ones. There there are eight levels of that kind of absorption. I hate lists, but I'll tell you there are eight. You know, there there are levels of, of deep, deep peace. I mean, really, really deep peace. Not just little moments of peace, but to be able to sit for hours and just experience a sublime level of peace. There are very deep levels of bliss. You know, not little flashes of happiness and elation, but real bliss, you know, a real sense of absolute bliss. There are deep levels of of joy. There are very deep levels of equanimity. There are levels of absorption where there is a cessation, basically, of mind and a cessation of body consciousness, where there is just, basically, that quality of equanimity and being. And associated with these absorption states uh, is this variety of, of kind of mystical powers that you read about and hear about. Some people choose to develop that because they have a karmic inclination towards it. Some people choose to develop mindfulness to a deeper level, a more kind of microscopic perception of the moment. Some people choose to develop their energy centers. And all this variety of practices has particular benefits which are useful in continuing to develop or to unfold that sense of possibility in who we are. For other people, their interest is not so much in developing technique or practice, but rather there's deeper attraction to really refining and deepening that open sense of awareness, which accommodates the total sense, your total sense of the moment, which accommodates the present fully and totally, and your own self in it. And in that, that deepening of awareness, there comes about many, many insights into the very kind of nature of actuality, the very nature of being. One really begins to see the way that, that suffering is created and the, the very way that it is not necessary, that it is possible to be free from suffering. You really begin to appreciate the kind of impact of, of change, of impermanence, you know, how that is not a negative concept, but how that, that is very, very freeing. You know, to truly understand impermanence and change deeply it has a dramatic impact on our consciousness and dramatically changes our way of being. There's to a deeper understanding about our notions of self, not a negation of I, because to me the practice is not concerned with negating ego or erasing I, but one really sees the, the insubstantiality of it and how one's sense of being can never, ever be limited to any notions of I, but how your own sense of yourself, your own being, is so very, very much more vast, more total than every, any definition than the sense of I can ever give to you. Through the insights come and the insights are integrated into your very being, integrated into your very way of seeing, so that there are deep, lasting changes that take place in your consciousness. There's not a sense of going back to returning to a sense of a, a limited sense of who I am and my own sense of potential. There's less, much less practice of technique. There's also much less of a sense of going in and out of awareness, you know, dipping into awareness and then being unaware. 
there's a deep sense of actually being established in that seeing, in that way of being, in which there's clarity of seeing, in which there's a clarity of perception. And both the practice and the development of insight has its own momentum. It's not to say that you dispense, dispense totally with, with technique or method. You may find at times it's very useful to employ them as a tool for working with blocks, for working with, with states of mind. But there's no sense that your practice is going to take you from A to B, that your practice is going to take you to enlightenment. Rather, there's a deeper sense of being. And in that deepening sense of being, there's a true sense of beginning to understand a true sense of what grace is the not doing, the not being in charge, the not being in control, that inner sense of grace, of a kind of total receptivity, of just being in the moment, of just seeing, and in that grace and receptivity, discovering a real depth of richness in each moment and within yourself. And in that place of grace, and there's really no better word to describe it, it is a place in which basically... Essentially, you're in that place of receptivity where you can be touched by truth and by insight, by an understanding of reality of oneself which is liberating. And that that place of grace is the unfoldment of meditation. There's a deep understanding that there is nothing I can do, there is nowhere that I can go in this place. But in this place of grace, one is truly touched and in that place of grace is a deep sense of the interconnectedness, the fundamental oneness of all life, of all being, in which we share. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings develop in understanding. May all beings Abide with grace.